0: Yeah, as, uh, as uh, Paul said, this, this passage has long sort of fascinated me. Um, and the book of Luke is wonderfully complex. If, if the Gospel of Mark is sort of straightforward and action-packed and sort of very obvious about what Mark is trying to, to accomplish there and what he's trying to tell us about Jesus, Luke is wonderfully complex. He's never just doing one single thing in a passage. Um, and these early chapters of his Gospel... He's, he's establishing who Jesus is. He's establishing the fact that Jesus really did accomplish everything he needed to accomplish. He's establishing the fact that, that this, new, this new sect called, calling themselves Christians, calling themselves followers of the way, are not people who are coming out of left field, but they're actually in line, in continuity with the Old Testament. Uh, and he's doing that through a variety of, of people through in these early chapters, through Elizabeth and Zechariah, through Mary primarily, not so much through Joseph, through the shepherds, the angels, and now through three further witnesses. Through Mary and Joseph, and I would argue through Moses, because what they're doing is, involves the law of Moses. Through Moses, and then through this person called Simeon. And the story I read with my children every year, it has Simeon in it as well. Um, and then through this, this, this third person called Anna. And Luke places them as credible witnesses. They're true Jews. They're true believers in Christ. There's a lot of political Jews. There's a lot of religious, legalistic Jews. We know about those. But there were always a remnant of true believers who practiced the true religion of Yahweh, who trusted Him and what he had revealed to Israel. And Simeon and Anna and Mary and Joseph are part of that remnant of true believers. Luke says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And Anna was, spoke to all those who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Uh, that resonates with me, that sense of waiting, that sense of, okay, Lord, I, I, you've got me where you want me, but Lord, I long to see you more in this life, and I long to see you in the, in the age to come as well. They're, they're waiting expectantly, they're seeking, they're pursuing Yahweh. And so Luke gives us three, these three credible witnesses to show that actually true Old Testament saints, when they saw Jesus, they rejoiced. They said, oh yes, my eyes have seen your salvation, says Simeon. This is not something out of left field. This is not a bunch of wackos. This is is in line with, with the Old Testament, with the Old Covenant. And so we get these wonderful, faithful believers, these first disciples, in a sense, of Jesus. And that's what I want to talk about before, sorry, this morning, is just how Luke gives us these three wonderful examples of of resilient discipleship through these these three these three witnesses Mary and Joseph and the law of Moses to to a certain extent through Simeon and through Anna what does resilient discipleship look like we've needed to be resilient this this these last what two years now i arrived in january well the last week of december 2019 and uh, 3 months later the country was in lockdown And I was thinking, Lord, you you very clearly brought us here to plant a church. And uh, well, we're in lockdown. (laughs) What does church planting in lockdown when you can't gather? That's a key component of church. If you can't gather in person, regardless of what anyone else says, it is an essential activity. What does it look like to plant a church? So I've been learning a lot about resilience. I suspect that many of you have as well what does it mean to be a resilient follower of Jesus? And I want to suggest to you this morning that the secret to resilience, there's probably several, but one of them, the one that I've been thinking about this last week, is this idea of joy. Each of these saints, each of these true Jews, when they saw Jesus, what did they do? They rejoiced. They rejoiced. And so in line with James chapter 1, when James says, Rejoice, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you meet many trials of many different kinds. Because why? Because it leads to, ultimately, to being made perfect, to becoming mature in Christ. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It reminds me of what Nehemiah said, the priest said to, to the Israelites in the book of Nehemiah. They said, the joy of the Lord is our strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so I want to suggest to you that the secret to resilient discipleship is joy. Now, if you're thinking, oh, the preacher's going to end up saying that I have to be happy all the time. No, that's not joy. That's not joy. Joy is something far deeper. I keep thinking, you know, Philippians is the book of joy. And there's that wonderful verse just before in chapter four where, where Paul says, he says, he says, give all of your requests, make all of your requests known to God and His peace. And I think often joy looks like that deep-seated, that deep-rooted, unshakable peace that only His Spirit can give us. The secret to resilience is joy. I don't want to look at three aspects of that through these three, these three uh, witnesses this morning. The first is that Mary and Joseph, they rejoiced through obedience. They rejoice through obedience. Simeon rejoices through worship, and that's a little bit of a broad term because Simeon has a whole bunch of stuff in here, and he gets the the broad, the the the, the, the vast majority of the text. He, worship, he he rejoices through worship, and then Anna rejoices through devotion and proclamation. We'll, we'll get there at the end as well. So let's just let's jump in. Let's look at Mary and Joseph. Uh, the first thing I want to establish, first of all, is that it's less obvious than with the other two. Mary and Joseph really did rejoice uh, it's it's kind of subtle but if you look back in verse 19 when the when the, when, the, when the shepherds came to see jesus lying in a manger mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart and i want to suggest to you that that stems from a place of joy she treasured them up and she pondered them in her heart and then later on in verse 33 it says that both joseph jesus mother and his father marveled at what had been said about him they rejoiced. And can I suggest to you in a third way that they rejoiced through this obedience. We see that through in verse 21, that at the end of eight days, he was circumcised. That was, that was mandated by the law of Moses. that all, And actually further back with Abraham, that all, all Jewish, Israelite, Hebrew men, boys, on the eighth day were to be circumcised. But he was also called Jesus. Both Mary and Joseph were told, you shall call him Jesus. Luke tells us for Mary. Matthew tells us that Joseph was told the same thing separately. They obeyed. They didn't have to obey in that sense. We get a choice. We we are human. We have some agency in the matter. They didn't have to, but they did and that obedience, again, I want to suggest to you, stemmed from the place of joy. We see that in Mary in this, this wonderful song she sings. Mary's the Magnificat in chapter 1. And Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Their obedience stems from this place of joy. And so in verse 22, they continue. They come up for the purification according to the law of Moses. And they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the law, as is written in the the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Luke sort of takes, because there's several different things that are going on here, he sort of takes several different things they were doing, and he sort of puts them together. And it's sort of They needed to redeem the oldest child, which is a temple tax of five shekels or something like that. So they went up to do that, but they didn't actually have to take Jesus to present him at the temple in order to do that. But Luke very specifically says they took him to present him to the Lord. It sort of reminds us of what Samuel's mother, whose name I've forgotten. Do we actually know her name? Hannah, thank you. Hannah did with Samuel. She she had this miraculous child from the Lord and she gave him back. And we get a little bit of a of a a mirror of that. They went to pay the tax, they went to offer him back to the Lord. They presented him to the Lord. And then Mary as well went to offer the sacrifice for purification for the woman forty days after she had given birth. So they go to do that. And then verse 39, if you skip to the end, Luke says. They, When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Luke is really, really clear. They did everything that they were supposed to do according to the law of Moses for Jesus as a child. Everything. Now, now we often speak about how Jesus kept the whole law. He was a perfect man later on in his life, but Luke's really clear now. Right from the beginning, his parents as well kept the whole law. And what Luke is setting us up for a little bit is that one of the things Jesus came to do was not just to keep it, but as Matthew says, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, he came to fulfill it. He didn't just keep it, he fulfilled it. He completed it. No, no other human has ever done that. And Jesus did it right from the beginning. Romans chapter four actually says that he, he, Jesus says he didn't come to fulfill it, but he, came to, he didn't sorry, he came to fulfill it and not abolish it. So the law still exists. But Romans chapter 10 says that for those who trust in him, He ended the law. The law no longer has any power, any sway. We have no we who are in Christ, have no need for it. We have no need for it. In fact, Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 7 that the law serves only to reveal sin so that we can know what sin is. But we who are in Christ have no need for the law. We do what God wants. We obey Christ because we love Him, because we trust Him. Jesus fulfilled the law. He ended the law through those who are in Him. And so the truth here, the testimony of Joseph and Mary as they rejoice through obedience, is that we no longer relate to God through the law, through the sacrificial system that the law brought into existence, but we relate to God through Jesus Christ. I don't think, I'm pretty certain on this, that when we stand before God on the last day and He says, why should I let you into my heaven? It's not going to have the conversation. Not going to have anything to do with the law, and it's going to have everything to do with who Jesus is and how you know Him. It's going to have everything to do with Jesus. Paul again to go back to Romans chapter one, Romans chapter one and verse five, and then in, the, in the, that's the first chapter, and then in the last chapter, in chapter sixteen and verse where's my note twenty six, Paul uses this wonderful phrase that the gospel was preached to bring about the obedience of faith. And so Mary and Joseph are obedient to the law here, but ultimately they're obedient to God because they trust Him. And we don't have the law anymore. We don't need it. We obey Christ. The obedience of faith. The obedience that God is looking for from you and I is not an obedience of rules and regulations and doing the right things. It's an obedience of faith. If you remember, we preached through this when we were still online. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 12 and 13. Peter defines faith for us. Those who love him and trust him. That's the obedience God is looking for from you and I towards Jesus is to love and trust Jesus. Isn't that wonderfully sort of hard to define in a sense? Rules and regulations are good because then we can go, yeah, check, 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 check. But to love and trust Jesus, that sounds awfully a lot like a relationship. Oh, isn't that funny? To love and trust Jesus. I, I was going to bring uh, something, a really long, stretchy thing this morning, and get James to hold the other, the other end and, I, and, tell, and then say, James, I'm going to let go now, but you're going to be fine. See, he doesn't love and trust me enough. He might love me, but he doesn't trust that I'm actually able to get over there and stop it sort of smacking into his face before I let go of the other end. The reality is when you love and trust someone to the extent that we should and can trust and love Jesus, you'll do whatever he asks of you. We do the will of God without the need for regulations, without the need for the law. That's how Jesus fulfilled it not only for himself, but for we who walk in the Spirit. Mary and Joseph rejoice through obedience. What does that mean for us? Can I ask you that simple question again this morning? Where do you need to trust Jesus this year? We've trusted him. I think most everyone here has trusted him in the big ultimate sense of, yeah, but there are times, there's growth we don't start when you first start trusting Jesus in the ultimate way for the first time there's still bits and pieces of your life that you're still holding on to you're hiding it in a back pocket or something and where's that where's that thing that you're that next thing that you're holding back from him that you're saying i'm nah, not this is still mine i don't know where that is for you so maybe you do know maybe you already sort of know and you need someone to say come on where, where's it at it's worth, it's time to give that up to Jesus. It's worth doing. Talk about that in a second. Maybe it's a positive thing that you need to trust him and step out, step off the I love the edge of the, 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 the visual of stepping off the edge of the cliff because Jesus is going to catch you. It's a positive thing. Step into the unknown. Maybe it's a, a negative thing. You need to get rid of something. Maybe there's some sin, a persistent, ongoing, those. Oh, what's the phrase? The um, our persistent sins, our besetting sins. I love that phrase. The ones that you keep struggling with. And Jesus is saying, that one right here, it's time to deal with that. Where do you need to trust him this year? The image that came to me was, as I was thinking about it yesterday, and thinking, like yeah, a good illustration of that." My little girl, that one over there. We had Jessica and Jonathan over to our house for Christmas, and John- Jonathan brought this wonderful sweet potato casserole, and it had brown sugar and pecans on top, and some other things as well. It was absolutely delicious. It was sweet. It was, mm. but that child back there wouldn't. Take a bite. No matter how much I told her, you're going to like it. I promise. It's sweet. It's dessert. You're gonna like it. It's the best God, it's dessert for main course. I mean, it's sort of slipped under the radar, and we think that's she wouldn't touch it. And Jesus saying, Love me, trust me. Here's the thing to do. It's gonna be good for you. That's the image. One of the things I keep thinking about is that. So often we want this idea, we we take this idea of obedience to Christ and we make it sound sterile and uh, just not fun and austere. And it's like, no, 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 The, 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 the holy life, the life of obedience to Christ, of trusting Him and loving Him is the good life. The good life in our culture is defined as go figure out who you are And then, or define it for yourself, and then become yourself, realize self-realization, and then you'll be happy. But the reality of all of that is that that's utterly exhausting. To have to define yourself and be yourself and prove it to a whole bunch of people that this is—it's a constant, ongoing cycle. and And we live in a culture that is exhausted with this new idea of, not, it's not new, with the current iteration of it. And Jesus says, come to me, love and trust me. I'm worthy of your trust. I'll prove it to you. And in that, as we walk in that obedience of faith to him, rest, rejoice through obedience this new year. Simeon, oh, this is where it gets good. I mean, it's already been good, but it gets better. Uh, Simeon rejoices through worship. Uh, I just want to make a note on that. He's, he, he sees Jesus and he rejoices, but he does a whole bunch of things. We get this really clear sense that the Holy Spirit is upon him. He's filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit hasn't been given yet, so we're going to need to think about that for a second. But he has the Holy Spirit. He, he prophesies, but actually, he's, in some ways, he's paraphrasing Isaiah. So he knows the scriptures, and he's, it, this is actually the fifth of five songs that Luke shows us. The Magnificat is one, the angel's song, uh, Zechariah's song, Elizabeth, I think, is counted as a song. There's five songs that Luke records, and this is the fifth one. So he's singing as well, but there's prophecy mixed in, there's scripture mixed in, there's the Holy Spirit mixed in here. I called it worship. I wasn't quite sure how, if you have a better word for it, you can see me afterwards or shout it out right now. But Simeon rejoices through worship. And now we get a contrast. If, If Mary and Joseph were rejoicing through obedience and we get the law, we've talked about how Jesus fulfills that. Now we get Simeon, and all of a sudden we get the Holy Spirit popping up multiple times. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. This man is filled with the Spirit. We were in the book of Acts, and in chapter 5, they pick out some men because they were full of the Spirit. Stephen was full of the Spirit and full of grace, I think it was. This man is full of the Spirit. Now, the Spirit was poured out on all those who trust in Jesus at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. But the Spirit was still at work in the Old Testament. And here he's clearly, I mean, Simeon is clearly a man filled with the Spirit, and here he's doing, we find himself doing two things that Jesus promises in John chapter 14 and chapter 15 and chapter 16. He, two things that, 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 that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would do. The first is that Simeon is righteous and devout. Luke says, remember, this guy, is he's a true, a true Jew, a true believer. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's, that's that, the sense of, now I've forgotten my reference here and I didn't write it down. It's Isaiah chapter 52, I think, or 49. The consolation of Israel. That comes from the book of Isaiah. And Simeon's whole testimony here is, is, is filtered through with references to Isaiah. He's waiting for the consolation of Israel. The one who would comfort is the word. Consolation, it's the word comfort. And Jesus promises in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16 that he would send another helper. It's the Greek word, it's the equivalent of consolation, the one who would comfort, the one who would help. And so we see the Spirit comforting Simeon. How does he comfort him? He promises him, he reveals to him that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ, the Messiah. The Messiah. But the spirit also does another thing very clearly here. He reveals Jesus. Simeon comes into the spirit into the temple by the spirit. That spirit comes, says, Simeon, it's time to go. I'm not sure if it was an audible voice. But the spirit is the one who drives. Simeon to the temple, the Spirit is busy revealing Jesus. In fact, if you look at the enti- all of the first, the references to the Spirit throughout the beginning of this book, the Spirit is having a party. He's on Elizabeth, he's on Zechariah, he's on Mary. He's busy doing what? Revealing Jesus. And he does that for Simeon here as well. He's the comforter. He loves to comfort and he loves to reveal Jesus. And so we get this contrast between the law and the Holy Spirit. We see the Holy Spirit's action here. And Simeon somehow recognizes Mary and Joseph coming into the temple, sees them, and he knows. In the same way that he knew it was time to go to the temple, he knows this is the one. And he takes Jesus into his arms. And here he says some interesting things. The first thing he does is he blesses God And he sings the first part of the song. And then he turns to father and mother and he blesses them and has some prophecy for them, a little less cheerful. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. There's wordplay on the word see here. Did you notice it? Back in verse 26, it had been revealed to Simeon by the Holy Spirit that he would not see what? Death, until he had seen who? And now he says in verse twenty, in verse 30, my eyes have seen your salvation. So there's three things he's going to see. He wouldn't see death until he's seen the Lord's Christ. And then he sees Jesus holding his arm and says, I've seen your salvation. What a marvelous parallel between Jesus and salvation. Friends, to see Jesus is to see the Lord's salvation. To see Jesus is to see the Lord's salvation. And it's sort of, I've been pondering this all week. He holds the tiny baby in his arms and says, I've seen your salvation, and now I'm content to die. It doesn't say it doesn't he doesn't want more than that. I would sort of be going, oh, I want to see the next thing as well. I mean, this is just the baby. What, how's it all going to play I'll work out? And I want to see the... De-. And he says, no, I've seen your salvation and I'm content to go. That, for me, that challenged my notion of what it, what my goal in life is because that's less of a doing thing and more of a being thing. I've seen, I've been with, I've held him in my arms and I'm now I can die in peace. So many of our classic, not so many, all of our classic resolutions for New Year's are always doing something. At least most of mine are. Maybe you're more spiritual than I am. It's always about doing something, I'm going to lose some weight, I'm going to read more, even good, not bad things, good things. But his resolution in a sense was, Jesus, you are my only resolution. To see you, to behold you, to know you. You are my only resolution. To see Jesus is to see salvation, is to be freed from the fear of death. And then he continues and he says this. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Ah, Mary and Joseph would have been standing there and perhaps quite possibly they would have been thinking, Gentiles, that's new. You see, it's there in the Old Testament. We're going to look at a couple of references in just a second. It's there. That God was going to bring salvation for the world, Jews and Gentiles. But most Jews weren't quite hadn't quite got there. If you look with me for just a second in Isaiah and chapter 52. Is that the one I want? Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 10. Yes. Simeon says. You have prepared in the presence of all people's light for revelation for the Gentiles. And Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 10 says, The Lord has bared his holy, his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. There's that. He's done it in the presence of all peoples. Isaiah says, You've bared your arm to all the nations. Isaiah chapter 49 and verse and verse 6 is more explicit. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you, Israel, as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Not just the ends of the earth, but the nations, the Gentiles. Friends, this is the... the, the the mystery of what Christ did. There's this vocabulary throughout the epistles of the mystery that has now been revealed. You see something, the Old Testament prophets revealed things as though looking at a a mountain range from far away. You sort of see there's a mountain up there and you get closer and you start to see peaks. And we get to Jesus and all of a sudden a bunch more stuff gets revealed, becomes clear. The mystery of the Gentiles, the mystery of the church. Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 says this. He says, this is the mystery in verse, chapter 3 and verse 6 of Ephesians. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Friends, we are, does anyone have Jewish roots here? We're the Gentiles. That's us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Jesus came to bring in a light for the Gentiles. And my favorite reference, how did he do that? How did we become fellow partakers in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26? The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in us. How did we become part of the same, heirs of the same promise, partakers of, I'm getting the language all mixed up. How did we become part of that? Christ in us, the hope of glory. Which is why we see Simeon filled with the Holy Spirit, because Christ is in us through His Spirit. Light for the Gentiles and glory for the Jews. Light in the darkness for the Gentiles, glory for the Jews, the glory of a fulfilled prophecy, a fulfilled promise that God is faithful, that He has come through and done what He promised to do. Simeon knows the book of Isaiah. He's got some sense of what's going to happen. It's glory for the people of Israel. Glory because not because they've done anything, but because God has fulfilled. And so Luke puts this foreshadowing right at the beginning of his book through Simeon. There's continuity with the Old Testament. The Old Testament saints see Jesus and rejoice. The law is fulfilled, and yet there's something new. It's mystery revealed. Christ in us, the hope of glory. And then he turns to Jesus' mother and father. And he blesses them and says this. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce you through your own soul also, he says to Mary, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He's quoting, he's paraphrasing from Isaiah, and two references in particular. I want to just read both of them just briefly so we can hear, hear what Isaiah says. If I can find Isaiah here. Isaiah in chapter eight and verse fourteen. I should have warned you ahead of time, we'd flip around a little bit this morning. Isaiah chapter eight and verse fourteen. And he, that is, the servant of the Lord, he will become a sanctuary. Sanctuary is the sanctuary of Judah was made of stone. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the houses of Jerusalem. So there's, he's going to become a sanctuary, a stone, a stone of stumbling. And then in Isaiah chapter twenty-eight, verse sorry, Isaiah chapter is that right? Twenty-eight, and verse sixteen. That's twenty-seven. Twenty-eight, and verse sixteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a found who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be put to shame is what some translations say. And so Simeon has several ideas in what he's this child is appointed for the fall and for the rising of many. He will be opposed, and the thoughts of hearts will be revealed. And we get that from those verses in Isaiah. That's where he gets those ideas. There's four kinds of stones that Isaiah talks about. The first is this idea of a sanctuary, a stone of refuge, if you will. Jesus will be for the rising. Those who trust in him will not be in haste, Isaiah says, will not be put to shame. But others, many others... Will fall, the picture of someone who's fallen off a cliff and there's no return. He's been appointed for the falling and the rising of many. He will be a stumbling stone. That's the image of falling. People are going to trip over Jesus. He, he's also a stone of testing, says in Isaiah chapter 8. And he's a cornerstone, says Isaiah chapter 28. And that's the idea of the, the, the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. There's two stones that are really important in a building in those days. There's the cornerstone, and that's more a foundational. It sits on the foundation. It's at, it's at the junction of two walls coming together. And so it gets laid, and then everything else gets laid in relation to it. And a stone of testing is, is, is the, the capstone in a sense. It's the stone get, that gets put on last and it shows whether everything else has been put into place correctly. He's the first stone and he's the last stone. He's the one who reveals whether everything else is lined up right. That's what Simeon is, 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 prof, is prophesying about. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The truth of this, friends, is that Jesus is the litmus test for where people are at spiritually. And I mean that very literally. We live in a culture that is very happy to talk about God. Christians talk about God. Culture talks about God. Hindus talk about God. Muslims talk about God. Buddhists talk about God or God's we're happy to talk about God. We talked about this, I think it was on like Christmas Eve. God has a name. His name is Jesus. He's the litmus test. People's reaction, people's relationship to Jesus is the test for where they're at with God. If we just talk about God, like some nebulous out there, who is he? Okay, the God of the Bible, that's better. But Jesus... God has finally revealed himself in Jesus through the prophets, through many times and many places to our forefathers, says the writer of Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 2. But now, finally, in these last days, through Jesus, who is the exact imprint of the Father. I'm making a big deal about this because I could talk about Joe. Joe's my friend. And I say to to, to Best, Best, if you've met my friend Joe, he's short, he's got really long hair, he, he, he hates football. Do you know my friend Joe? That's not Joe. I've just described somebody else who has the wrong name. Who are we talking about? We could talk about God, we can call on God, we could say, but if Jesus is the one who represents God. He is God. And so friends, this year, can I, can I challenge you? Yeah, okay, we talk about God, that's fine. But keep talking about Jesus, very literally. Work his name into conversations. Don't just talk about God with your friends who don't know him. Talk about Jesus. Jesus is the litmus test. He reveals the hearts of many. Two questions. I'm running a little long. Two questions. Be filled with the Holy Spirit this year. Acts chapter 5, verse, seven, verse 18. Sorry, not Acts. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18. Be filled. Do not be drunk with wine. Be filled. Be controlled by the Holy Spirit. How do you be controlled by the Holy Spirit? How do you be filled with Him? Can I suggest to you that, if you remember with Simeon, he loves, the Holy Spirit loves to reveal Jesus. If you want to be filled with the Spirit, pursue Jesus. Pursue Him. I don't know any better better way than, than doing that by to give yourself in worship to him, to give yourself to his word and dive in and, and, and learn to love it and know it, memorize it, let it dwell within you. I don't know any better way to pursue him than to talk about him with other believers when you're standing up or sitting down, whether you're going out or coming in, wherever you are. Pursue him and his spirit will fill you. I want to talk just a second about countercultural, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that at length. All I have to say is that our relationship with Jesus, if we're like Simeon and we have the same relationship with death and the same desire for Jesus, we are going to be countercultural. We're going to be a stumbling stone, in a sense, for our culture. And those are the things we want to be countercultural about, our relationship to death and our relationship to Jesus. Let me just end with Anna. I haven't learned to. The clock is over there, and I've got to look at it. Um, the two things that strike me about Anna are this, and this is what Luke pulls out to us: her her devotion to God through many stages of life, but also in her in her in her presence in the temple constantly. She worked. She's she's followed him since before she was married, through her marriage for seven years, and then for a long time as a widow as well. Faithfulness in all seasons of life. Continuing in the temple, her devotion. What does your devotion to the Lord look like in this season? What does it look like? And that's not a guilt question. That's an honest, what does it look like right now? Is it really organized and regular and every day and you sit down? That's a good thing. Is it is it choppy because you're not an organized person like me and so it sort of happens a little more spontaneously and you got to have some organization in there as well? Is it hard right now because you've got kids because you're busy taking care of aging parents or I, I don't know what's your devotion what's your devotion to the lord look like right now and following on from that where where do you meet him regularly most of us we meet him we, we we commune with him differently some of us it's through music some of it's 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 in the quiet reading the scriptures some of us it's you need to go into a into a really old cathedral Church, I lost out in the middle of the country and sit in the quiet and just reflect. And Jesus meets you there. I don't know what it is for you, but keep on, keep on. If you if you if you haven't done something with Him for a while, start doing it again. We don't need to be guilt ridden people, but we want to be people who long for the presence of our Savior. Anna's devotion and lastly her proclamation. She, because she was devoted to him, she recognized him. Quite literally, she was in the temple, and so she was there when Simeon started speaking. Her devotion to the Lord allowed her to. I suspect there was something else. She was a prophetess as well, likely filled with the Spirit. Luke doesn't say. But her devotion to the Lord allowed her to recognize what he was doing, where he was at work. Henry Blackaby, who wrote a book called Experiencing God, some of you may be familiar with, he has this wonderful phrase. He says, find out where God is working and then go join him there. That's Anna. She sees where he's working and she goes over to join in. And she meets Jesus and then she goes away to speak of him to all who are waiting for redemption of Jerusalem. Now, we don't have, we're not the people of Israel. We don't have sort of this background. In fact, more and more in our culture, we don't have the same undergirding of a biblical framework or worldview with people who don't know Jesus. Anna did because they had the law and the prophets. And so they had this sense that they were waiting for the Messiah. And she went to those who were waiting. My question for you this morning is, who are the people around you who are waiting for redemption? Who desperately need to hear about Jesus? Who are the people who are waiting? I don't keep pushing evangelism, and there's evangelism is it's a really big thing. It's there's all kinds of different evangelism. So if you're thinking of one particular thing in your head, it's way broader than that. Jesus said in Luke chapter 15 after telling the parable of the, 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 leaving the, the shepherd leaving the sheep to, to find the one. He says there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. We're talking about joy this morning. You know what heaven gets excited about? Sinners repenting. If you want to know the joy of the Lord, friends, we've got to keep trying to find ways to tell those around us who don't know about Christ about Him. If you want to experience joy this year, and if you're looking for one thing to step out into the unknown with Jesus about, do that one. Dare to tell someone about Jesus. Dare to work his name into a conversation where you could have just said God. Because, there's, oh friends, there's so much joy there. I am so excited that first Sunday when we get to gather with someone who has just come to Christ and is with us and to see them worship as part of our family, as part of God's family, Jesus' family. I'm so excited. I can't wait. I'm praying hard for that one. I hope you are too. Not as a duty. Evangelism, not as a duty, but as joy seekers. We want to know His joy. Let me close with this. I just, I wrote this um, thinking about what I'd said. We want to be, this year, a church which rejoices because we've seen Jesus for ourselves and helps others to see Him as well. We need to live out this kind of rejoicing, resilient discipleship for one another. We need to model it for each other, but also model it for our children, for those who are younger than us in the faith. And so can I encourage you, obedience, worship, devotion, and proclamation. Keep chasing Jesus this next year.